Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favourite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss, along with a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Deborah Landau, author of The Uses of the Body and The Last Usable Hour, both land and literary selections. She's received a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Robert Dana Anhinga Prize for Poetry, and she directs the creative writing program at New York University. Welcome, Deborah. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today. So the poem you've chosen from the archive is Little Girl, My String Bean, My Lovely Woman by Anne Sexton. Can you tell us why this particular poem stood out to you? Well, for, for several reasons, but I'll start by saying that it would have been Sexton's 90th birthday this month, and I thought it would be nice to uh, read this in her honor. Great. Let's hear it, and then we can talk after. Little girl, my string bean, my lovely woman. My daughter at 11, almost 12, is like a garden. Oh, darling, born in that sweet birthday suit and having owned it and known it for so long. Now you must watch high noon enter, noon, that ghost hour. Oh, funny little girl, this one under a blueberry sky, this one. How can I say that I've known just what you know and just where you are? It's not a strange place, this odd home where your face sits in my hand, so full of distance, so full of its immediate fever. The summer has seized you, as when, last month in Amalfi, I saw lemons as large as your desk-side globe, that miniature map of the world. And I could mention, too, the market stalls of mushrooms and garlic buds all engorged. Or I think even of the orchard next door, where the berries are done and the apples are beginning to swell. And once, with our first backyard, I remember I planted an acre of yellow beans we couldn't eat. Oh, little girl, my string bean, how do you grow? You grow this way. You are too many to eat. I hear as in a dream the conversation of the old wives speaking of womanhood. I remember that I heard nothing myself. I was alone. I waited like a target. Let high noon enter, the hour of the ghosts. Once the Romans believed that noon was the ghost hour, and I can believe it too under that startling sun. And someday they will come to you. Someday men bear to the waist young Romans at noon where they belong with ladders and hammers while no one sleeps. But before they enter, I will have said your bones are lovely. And before their strange hands, there was always this hand that formed. 
oh darling, let your body in. Let it tie you in, in comfort. What I want to say, Linda, is that women are born twice. If I could have watched you grow as a magical mother might, if I could have seen through my magical, transparent belly, there would have been such ripening within. Your embryo, the seed taking on its own, life clapping the bedpost, bones from the pond, thumbs and two mysterious eyes, the awfully human head, the heart jumping like a puppy, the important lungs, the becoming while it becomes, as it does now, a world of its own, a delicate place. I say hello to such shakes and knockings and hijinks, such music, such sprouts, such dancing mad bears of music, such necessary sugar, such goings-on. Oh, little girl, my string bean, how do you grow? You grow this way. You are too many to eat. What I want to say, Linda, is that there is nothing in your body that lies. All that is new is telling the truth. I'm here. That's somebody else, an old tree in the background. Darling, stand still at your door, sure of yourself. A white stone, a good stone, as exceptional as laughter, you will strike fire, that new thing. That was Little Girl, My String Bean, My Lovely Woman by Anne Sexton, which appeared in the August 7th, 1965 issue of the magazine. It was great to hear that aloud. You read it so well. Thank you. I wonder what strikes you about it, hearing it again. Well, there there are a couple of reasons why I chose this poem and why I've been thinking about it so much. First of all, Sexton was super important to me growing up. My mother gave me a book of her love poems at age 13, and it was (laughs) – I know. (laughs) It's quite a gift. (laughs) It's a heady book for a 13-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I couldn't believe that you could do these things in poems. And I started – reading and writing um, sort of passionately after that. And then when I looked back through the archive of which poems The New Yorker had published, I, I love this poem because, well, for several reasons, but especially because um, Anne Sexton read it as her anti-war poem. It was her version of, a, of an anti-war poem. She'd read it at the Vietnam protest rallies while other poets were reading these poems about napalm babies or whatever. You know, right. Her idea was this celebratory love poem to her daughter. And I love the idea of love as a form of resistance or joy as a form of resistance, as Toy Derricotte has said. That's great. Because there is a politics of it anyway. Right. And how would you describe its, you know, descriptions of power or or its resistance within the poem? Well, um, she's describing the the way in which living in a female body is fraught, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and how (laughs) difficult that can be at times, um, how difficult it can be to come into womanhood. She, as she says, I remember, I heard nothing myself. I was alone. I waited like a target, yeah, you a, know. <laughs> and um, she's offering her daughter something else. She's asking her to um, trust her body, to, you know, there's nothing in your body that lies. All that is, is all telling the truth. And it's a, it's a cause for celebration and for joy, um, this coming into adulthood as a woman or um, coming into one's own sexuality. And this was sort of radical at the time, right? I mean, people weren't writing poems about such subjects. And um, Anne Sexton was known for her kind of brazen taking on of subject matter that wasn't considered appropriate for poetry. 
Um, or for women. Or for or... women, especially, <laughs> you know. But to... she's also here saying uh, this lines, lines that are, I've been thinking about a lot since I reread it. What I want to say, Linda, is that women are born twice. Right. What is that part of that rebirth she's describing, or, or how do you read that? Oh, absolutely. So she she starts. It's sort of funny too to to read this. Um, you know, she's thinking if I where is that? If I'd watched you grow as a magical mother might, and she's imagining the the growing of the of the embryo inside her body. And of course, back in 1965, she wouldn't have seen a sonogram. So this seemed like magic to her that she could have seen um, the, the the baby growing within her. Um, Body, which of course we, we now do get to see when we when we um, have babies in the twenty first century, but um, so she's imagining that um, coming into one's body, coming into life, that version of being born, and then there's a second second um, time, which has to do with um, changing from a girl into a woman. Right, and the title is doing that. I mean, the title is a series of transformations. Uh, little girl, my string being almost a kind of nickname. Then my lovely woman, these, right these states of being that she, I think, is also saying that she's occupying all at once in this poem, at least, right. if not in her own self. It's uh, that liminal state. And String Bean was her nickname for her daughter, Linda. Oh, so. okay. And I feel that, you know, your bones are lovely, that kind of italicized second voice that is in the poem and that refrain, which I find really fascinating. Oh, little girl, my String Bean, how do you grow you grow this way. You are too many to eat. Mm-hmm. How do you take that? Well, there's so many images of abundance in mm-hmm. the in the poem, and I I love this you know the celebratory aspect with which she approaches the daughter's growth and um, this description of the abundance of the female body as it comes into its own. It's so fertile. You know, she uses that extended metaphor of the the daughter but being like a garden. And that was one of Sexton's great gifts was her power was with descriptive imagery, with metaphor, with simile. And she extends that to describe the, the lemons in Amalfi and the, the market stalls with mushrooms and garlic buds engorged and the berries being done and the apples swelling and the yellow beans. There were so many we couldn't eat them. So that, I think, um, evokes so powerfully the abundance of, of being a woman in a, in a, in a woman's body as it, uh, as it comes into its own, as her daughter's is. Well, there's a kind of Whitman-esque quality there of you're a multitude. Um, that's what I think is, is also really powerful there, too. Um, the becoming, while it becomes, as it does now, a world of its own, a delicate place. Right. She's really trying to to gift her daughter mm-hmm. this abundance mm-hmm. as much as she's mm-hmm. saying it's already there. Right, absolutely. And there is that kind of Whitmanic catalog where she's describing the ripening within your embryo, the seed taking on its own life, clapping the bedpost bones from the pond. There's something Whitmanic about Sexton for sure. And is that what struck you in Sexton when you were, was it 13 you said? Yeah, 13. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I suppose I was a string bean at that point, getting this from my mother. But um, I, I think the voice is so compelling in Sexton. I mean, she, it's so, it's jumping off the page with the energy. It's so direct. You're seized by it, right? The reader's sort of seized by the voice and the poem doesn't let you go. So um, a, a Sexton poem is never boring. And people <laughs> talked about her readings. Her readings were never boring, you know, and, right. and people say, would say, you know, I don't read poetry, but I read on Sexton. So I think that the voice is a big part of it. Her gift for metaphor and simile. Um, I love this in in uh, the long poem, 18 Days Without You, which actually The New Yorker did publish December 18th. She starts by, by saying... Um, and then I think of you in bed, your tongue half chocolate, half ocean. And there, <laughs> there's so many moments like that in right. Sexton where you just can't, you know, the image is so vivid. And so um, she's got that associative power, I think, which is so compelling. 
Well, and her work has this kind of abundance, even as it's wrestling with uh, absence, I feel like, um, in like the Death Notebooks or the mm-hmm. Awful Rowing Toward God, mm-hmm. these these poems, which those titles are just seared in my brain, seeing them when I was a teenager too, reading her work. Um, I wonder how that abundance, do you see that a foot in American poetry now or... Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a great time in American poetry right <laughs> right now, isn't it? I mean, people are reading poetry more than ever, we hear. And um, there's so much, especially the newer poets, the younger poets. And, and it's been great to watch our students coming out with such extraordinary books in recent years. Right. So absolutely. Well, I think there's a kind of um, ecstatic that's being practiced. And I would say that your poem that you've chosen today of your own has this ecstatic. And I wonder if we can think about that together after we hear it. Sure, of course. In the January 26, 2015 issue, the New Yorker published your poem, Solitaire. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it first? Well, this poem um, is from my third book, The Uses of the Body, which considers uh, the experience of living in a female body as time passes. So in some ways, it's a bookend to the sexton. Here's Deborah Landau reading her poem, Solitaire. Solitaire. That summer, there was no girl left in me. It gradually became clear. It suddenly became. In the pool, I was more heavy than light, pockmarked and flabby in a floppy hat. What will my body be when parked all night in the earth? Midsummer, breathe in, breathe out. I'm not on the oxygen tank. Twice a week we have sex. The lithe girls poolside. I see them at their weddings. I see them with babies, their hips thickening. I see them middle-aged. I can't see past the point where I am. Like you, I'm just passing through. I want to hold on a while. Don't want to not or forsake. Don't want to be laid gently or racked raw. If I retinol... If I marathon, if I vitamin C, if I crimson my lips and streakish my hair, if I wax, exfoliate, copulate beside the fish-slicked sea. Fill me I'm cold. Fill me I'm halfway gone. Would you crush me in the stairwell? Could we just lie down? If the brakes don't work, if the pesticides won't wash off, If the seventh floor pushes a brick out the window and it lands on my head. If a tremor, menopause, cancer, ALS. These are the ABCs of my fear. The doctor says, I don't have a pill for that, dear. Well, what would be a cure-all, ladies? Gin and tonics on a summer night? See you in the immortalities. Oh, blurred. Oh, tumble rush of days we cannot catch. That was Solitaire by Deborah Landau. How great to hear it aloud and, and to that voice. I, I can see the sexton very much. I hear that, especially in the rhyme at the end. These are the ABCs of my fear, a little plath and mm-hmm. a little of a lot of things. Tell us more about this poem. Well, first of all, it's funny to see how much I am indebted to Sexton in this work. I mean, the poems I'm writing now are nothing like this anymore, but this right. poem to me, it's so clear in the in the quality of the voice and the, the how it's music-driven and how direct it is about being in a female body as, it, as time passes, as I say. It's direct, but you have these wonderful, if I retinol, yeah. if I marathon, if I vitamin C, if I crimson my lips and streakish my hair, if I wax. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're sort of waxing poetic, but also <laughs> fragment there. I yeah. mean, tell me about that shift in the poem. 
Um, you know, these are all the things we do to sort of stave off the inevitable, right? And there's this wish that somehow if, you know, through um, exercise and vitamins and face creams and um, grooming practices and, you know, sex, which is a form of life force, we might uh, be able to preserve our state of being above ground on this planet. So um, that's what's there. And, you know, I like getting lost in the rhythm and music of language. Right. So I, I kind of I compose by ear, I revise by ear. And the sounds are important to me. And this part later where you say, if the brakes don't work, that's a very different if, if the pesticides won't yeah. wash out. How are those two, the life force, as you put it? Well, this is the catalog of all the fears, right? The <laughs> vulnerabilities of the body and my obsessiveness about all the things that can go wrong, you know, at any time, which, of course, now is even more uh, concerning. So is this the summer or is this the poet looking back on this summer? Who has these fears? Uh, this is the poet all the time who has these fears. <laughs> I wasn't trying to get you know too involved. But... If only it were only you know during one season a year or one right, moment. Right. <laughs> I don't know about the doctor either. The doctor seems you know a little bit uh, you know. Maybe a new doctor is in well, order? Well, I don't know. This is a, actually a doctor I know who will say this. It's a favorite joke of his whenever anyone's complaining about various anxieties <laughs> or fears or moods, you know, that there really is not a fix for these. And, you know, you can't cure death, right? Right. Well, there's poetry, which, you know, That's I think right. is, the, is the ultimate cure in this way. That's what we have. The music in the poem is about staving off something. I mean, there's a kind of light rhyme, I would say, uh, you know, light in the sense it's not too frequent, but it's so important to the poem's motion. Those E and deer and those kind of sounds, deer and clear, it gradually became clear, it suddenly became. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of repetition that you use and that I think I see in Sexton too, but here you take it to this interesting place that is kind of past music into a fragment, into, I would say, a kind of ecstatic that ends up at the end, uh, see you in the immortalities. Uh, you and Sexton and, I mean, who doesn't love an O? O blurred. <laughs> but I can't always get away with it. I know. How do you manage that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now that you've called attention to it, maybe I don't. You do, you do. <laughs> well, and I think it's partially because See You in the Immortalities, I take as both a true wish and also a kind of sarcastic trying to get past right, all of it. Right, as if. <laughs> we yeah. will. Right. There is no cure-all. But gin and tonics are a good start. And, you know, uh, everything we can do to generate life force, and that's where that's where sex comes in, you know, as an antithesis to death, yeah. or, you know, the, the eros that staves off Thanatos, or it feels like it does. Um, I wonder about the title. Yeah, so that's interesting. So um, I tend to write, my books um, are mostly comprised of long lyric sequences, which makes them difficult to publish as poems often, and I'm always having to excerpt them. So in this case, I took two different fragments from a long sequence and put them together and put a title on and send it to Paul <laughs> Muldoon, and he published yeah. it under this title. Tricky. So I tried, you know, I had to make a poem that could stand by itself, and the title, you know, I guess is meant to evoke the that we are just um, solitary, ultimately, going born and going through life and then not alive. Well, it's this game you play. I mean, it, it's a game, but it's also a time waster. It's also sort of uh, about the mind. Um, I think it, it's when, uh, when the eye sees the lithe girls, their hips thickening, I see the middle age, I can't see past the point where I am. Right. There's this kind of way in which that seems the ultimate solitaire. Yeah, yeah. That is a moment in the poem where the speaker is looking back at 
these lithe girls much in the way that Sexton's looking at her daughter. And you can kind of see everything that's ahead in terms of the way that the body changes and the life develops. But it is really hard to see uh, to see ahead of – it's hard to imagine at this point becoming an old person in an old person's body. <laughs> well, course. and I think here and throughout there's a kind of double vision where the eye sees the other folks, uh, the girls who are as women – uh, middle-aged women with babies on their hips, and then can't see herself. Mm-hmm. And there's also a way in which the poet knows more than this eye does, you know, about what's going to happen or the changes that are going to occur. It occurred to me, too, that this is, in a way, uh, from the daughter's point of view, because um, there isn't a mother exactly mentioned in the poem, but the mother is sort of haunting the poem. Right, and in the context of the book, there are poems about being a mother, so the eye is... Um also a mother, but you're right, not in this not in this poem. Well, tell us a little bit about that book, and then I also want to talk a little bit about Soft Targets, your new book. I love sequences, and I love hearing about how poets come to them, oh. and I know our readers and listeners would love that, Thank too. Thank you. Well, the new book is, as I said, totally different from anything I've done before, and um, it has felt, I never thought I would write political poems, but it has felt in the recent years that the pressure of reality has become too much. And as Wall Stevens said, you know, poetry is a violence from within that protects us against a violence from without, the imagination pressing back against the pressure of reality. So I've felt a need to, to press back, as I think most of us are feeling right now. And the poems in the new book are still about the body's vulnerability, but this time in a time of global crisis. So the fear of annihilation, which is very much in this poem, extends beyond the self to a, an imperiled planet on which we're all sort of soft targets, and there are so many threats. The threats of global terror, of climate change, of gun violence, the threats to our democracy, and so on. So a very different book. So do you think that poets in general, and you see poets both as, you know, a professor and someone in the world, uh, do you think poets are turning in that direction, or or, or were they always there? They've always been there. um, But I think uh, especially now we're seeing... um, poets taking on this, I want to say this terrible time in our <laughs> history, but maybe that's overstated. I hope it's I hope it's overstated. I mean, I think it's a moment where poets write about the world around, uh, but they also sort of see past it into something else. And I, I think that that's what's really interesting about this moment is you see people writing about it in new and interesting ways. I think that's the key. People have always been writing political poems or poems that were about their time, uh, Auden, for mm-hmm, instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but Auden, of course, famously rejected sort of all those poems later. Right. And now we, we're people are wrestling still with that same kinds of questions of how do you write about what's happening? I'm wondering, how, too, just to sort of finish up, how you see sort of the politics of – we were talking about how Sexton – would read the the poem we heard first as a kind of political poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you still look back on sort of the body poems and think of them in that way? Um, hers or mine? Yes. <laughs> um, I don't think of, of mine that way necessarily, but um, I very much like thinking of her poem that way um, because um, – you know, again, I love that quote. I think it's Troy Derricott who said, "Joy is a form of resistance." Yeah. To say these are the things we love, these are the things we must protect. This is our future. You know that tenderness is is and love can also be a way to fight back against a reality that seems increasingly violent, troubling, full of hate. Sure, you know, and 
against people who are very vulnerable, children mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. what Absolutely. have you. Absolutely. I think it's I think of Baldwin a lot because who was of course fiery and and tough and and brilliant and prescient and it's still so relevant. But he also would ultimately come back to love, as mm-hmm. you're saying, and mm-hmm. love would be sort of the word he would emphasize as mm-hmm. a solution. Uh, and I see that in all both the poems we talked about, but also in the your new work that you're thinking about. We published one of those poems. The poem about about snow, which snow. is <laughs> so. Tell me how the snow is political. Um, well, the title is what the snow goes to the gallows of warm grass. So there's something about climate change. Maybe I mean the book does have poems about climate change. That poem actually functions as a kind of palate cleanser in the book. <laughs> you know, there's been a, there's a lot of really poems about terrorism and poems about gun violence and such, and and the, it builds to a certain point, and then I have these snow poems that are meant to kind of provide a little bit of calm, a moment of calm or, or serenity. The book does feel like a long poem, actually, yeah. and that's what I love about the sequence, and the book does end on tenderness. Bring me a souvenir from the desecrated city, something tender, something that might bloom. So actually, as you say, I, I didn't actually realize that that's, that is in there, that that book does end on a, on a note of love, tenderness. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I know uh, everyone else is. Thank you so much for being here and talking with us, Deborah. Such a pleasure. Solitaire by Deborah Landau, as well as Anne Sexton's poem, Little Girl, My String Bean, My Lovely Woman, can be found on NewYorker.com. Deborah Landau's new collection, Soft Targets, is forthcoming in spring 2019. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope-A-Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice Podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes 
and make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.